Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Well, how did we get already halfway through the year? I don't know. We're not quite halfway through yet, no, Mike. Let's I not know. rush things. I know. I guess everything's feeling like it's coming to a head with episode 100 coming up in only a couple of weeks. Oh my weeks. gosh. That's exciting. It is exciting. I just didn't realize that. I mean, June's already, we're already no, halfway know. through We're June. in June. The fact that we're even in June is, is kind of disturbing. Yes. So the passage of time is happening paranormally <laughs> to me. And speaking uh, of the paranormal, let's talk about something that I'm, I'm paranormally bad at. And What's that, Mike? Th- that's working on my working on my condo. What? Yeah. So, well, this is uh, now we're in June. It's the summertime, so summer projects and summer projects is putting in new floor. Oh yeah, getting the cabinets. At the time where you can keep all the windows open, so that right. you know dust and everything can fly around. And you can work in the garage with the door open without freezing. Sure. Things like that. Yes. Well, if if you're good at those things, then it's a pleasure. Like I know a lot of a lot of men take pride in the way that they keep, you know, they're like, look at the, look at the cool project yeah. I did. Yeah. And women. No, I know that. No, but what I mean is <laughs> men particularly, it's, right. it's a societal gender construct of the man as someone who like, let's work on a way to create a better nest. Sure. Well, I, I am not one of those men. <laughs> so I'm just trying to take care of it. So you've been fighting the DIY battle. Yes. and Well, ah. I would say I've been losing the DIY battle more than anything. <laughs> no. But it's okay. It's okay. I'll have get you, there. Have you been consulting those those very useful people at the hardware store? No. Because when I ask, I ask people at the hardware store questions, like on Saturday, I'm at the hardware store. I need to know something about uh, a certain kind of primer that goes on so you can put flooring on. Yeah. And then I, I try to ask people at Menards. You know, because I'm at Menards saving big money. If you guys aren't in the Midwest, oh. you don't have Menards, but it's a... I love Menards. It's a home improvement chain, like a massive home improvement chain. The man that owns so John fun. John Menard is the richest man in Wisconsin, for whatever that's worth. Yes. And I'm in there and I'm asking people questions and nobody knows anything. I'm just like, well, what do you think well, about this okay. primer? And it's like, to be fair, mm-hmm. were, you there, were you there on a weekend? I was. So it was probably swarming with people all needing help a lot of the employees might have been younger newer people that aren't maybe not as experienced in the ways of home improvement sure so i get punished because <laughs> because of my schedule that i have to talk to the b well, team when it i have to talk to menards b squad i'm just saying if you need to talk to somebody select your associate carefully yes otherwise you're going to get uh, the jv when it comes to asking about home improvement questions anyway so it's going it's going. And one of these days, I'll, it'll look like a brand new condo, just all magically. And that'll probably be the day I finally sell it. So you know how it goes. Well, that's pretty fun. Yeah, well, it's something. And what are you, what, what are you spending your days doing, Wendy? <laughs> well, I've been running, Mike. I did it. I signed up for my first marathon. Oh, the first full marathon. Yeah, yeah. So started an 18-week training program. And so now I'm in the easiest shortest run segment of it so okay a few weeks of of, you know not a lot of not 
extraordinarily long runs but then i reach the point where i start running further than i've ever run before so okay it's exciting to have a challenge that is exciting are you are you gonna be traveling for this run or where are you gonna run it yeah i will be traveling i'm gonna be going to san francisco which is where or no 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 no. i'm sorry take it back i'm going to san francisco to do a half marathon yeah in august but this final marathon i'll just be traveling to milwaukee so just a short jaunt (laughs) about an hour away but it'll be easier than flying and having jet lag and dealing with all that. So, And it's in Milwaukee, so it's near where I grew up. So there will be some familiar sights and things like that that I think will make it hopefully more fun and maybe easier than <laughs> otherwise. Okay, well, that sounds nice then. I, I wish you luck. I'm out of the marathon business for a little while. When I finished my, <laughs> when I finished my fourth last year, it was a rough one, and I did, wasn't accomplishing what I wanted. So I take back, and I so gotta, you just quit, and you're like, no, nope, no, I just gotta, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta work on my my other fitness before I go back to the long distance stuff. So I'm trying to bring everything else up, so then I can go back and and, and crush it in the par, ah, in, in the parlance of how a good strategy, uh, yeah. good strategy. Well, see, part of my plan is, I mean, I have these great mentors such as yourself and my brother, people who run marathons regularly. Well, your brother is I've a good runner. Run multiple marathons. Well, so are you. And uh, as a first timer, I have no idea what to expect. So it's just uh, good to have some people that have been through it that can guide me. My senseis. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think you're going to have fun. And the, and the fun thing about a marathon versus a half marathon is the wall is a whole kind of different experience. So when you experience a wall on a half marathon, you're like, oh, man, I got like two miles to go. When you experience the wall in the full marathon, you're like, I'm probably going to die. So that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that does. That does scare me because the training only goes up to 20 miles. So I'm like, what's going to happen? Nothing's going to happen. You're going to be fine. And as long as you do the training, you're going to nail it. Like because so, on the day of, it's just a little head game you got to play. And it's so much easier to play those head games when there's a thousand people running by you, you know, that running not by you, like past you like, oh, no. But like when they're everybody's yeah, yeah. running with you, <laughs> with you, it's a very powerful That's experience. Cool. Well, I apologize in advance. Mike, because you're the one that spends a lot of time around me. And so you're going to hear a lot of complaining probably That's okay. <laughs> as I start doing more and more long runs. <laughs> that's, but I'll try not to. That's just fine. You had to hear it when I was doing my training. So that's okay. But anyway, so that's fun. So everybody's got their summer projects. Thanks. And we hope if you guys have any interesting summer projects, always let us know. You can tweet us yeah. at Other Side Talk and let us know what kind of fun stuff you're doing. Oh, also, I am doing one more f- interesting summer project. Ooh, what's that, Mike? Working on a haunted history tour of Waukesha, Wisconsin. Oh, man. You're just starting to really branch out here. That's exciting. Right. Because there's more cities with more history. And anyway, I've got a lot of history left. I mean, a history taken care of in Waukesha. But if anybody has stories or experiences of their own in Waukesha, we'd love to hear about it. So you can send us an email uh, info at othersidepodcast.com, or uh, once again, you can tweet at us. And um, I'd love to hear any personal experiences you had uh, in the Waukesha area, just in case you're from there. But Or if you want to work as a guide, too. We're hiring. There you go. Help wanted. Yes. So uh, anyway, enough about us. We should probably get to oh. the guest at hand. We should. Yes. Paul J. Davids is his name. A filmmaker and author and an interesting character. We had Very. A lo- yeah, we, we had a lot to talk about and... I was just excited that he worked on Transformers. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> which was Transformers. Cool. And the original cartoon, which I, I loved as a kid. And then <laughs> we talk about this in the interview too, but we've had Don Schmidt on the show before. And uh, also I've, I've known Don for almost 20 years now, probably. It's uh, the first time I met him and interviewed him for the Badger Herald back at UW in 1997. Oh, wow. College days. Yes. And Don Schmidt is one of the major people involved with the Roswell TV movie that came out on Showtime in 1994. Paul Davids was the producer cool. of it. And so, I mean, he talks about how his own personal experience led to him wanting to produce that film about Roswell. Wow. And he's a, a movie monsters guy, and he was really into all that stuff. And the crux of his thing is he's got a new book called An Atheist in Heaven about the supernatural communication that he's getting from his friend that passed away in 2008. Wow. And just the title is very intriguing, right. <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> so, I mean, and we'll get into this and we talk all about, uh, it's the editor of a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland. And uh, we reference Famous Monsters of Filmland in our song, I Was a Teenage Zombie. Oh my gosh. From, and so we even talk about that magazine in one of our songs from last year. So Forrest J. Ackerman was the editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland for decades. And this is his good friend, Paul J. Davids. And this whole book, Atheist in Heaven, and the, the documentary, The Life After Death Project, is the fact that Forrest J. Ackerman was an atheist in life and did not believe in anything happens to us when we die. But he made a deal with his friends that he would try to communicate with them after he died, kind of like Houdini did with his wife. Yes, yes. And we've talked about this with other people, too. Right. Which is a smart thing to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. And so, you know, like Houdini didn't make it get through to his wife. But Paul Davids is saying that Forrest Ackerman has. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty cool. So anyway, let's talk with filmmaker and author Paul J. Davids. So joining us today is Paul Davids. And Paul is, has a very uh, interesting paranormal pedigree in the different kind of documentaries and shows that he's worked on. So we look forward to talking to Paul today about, you know, what started getting him into this and uh, where he's at with it right now. So uh, how are you doing this evening, Paul? Uh, it's good. We were able to get together tonight. Yes, thank you. Michael. Well, I'm looking forward to our lively conversation. Okay, good. Thank you for joining us. So um, just... Uh, just to kind of uh, give a quick introduction uh, for people who may not have um, or be quite familiar with your work. So you are a filmmaker and an author, and you've worked on uh, different kinds of projects, like going from the Transformers TV show to mm -hmm. uh, the Roswell TV movie back in the the famous Roswell TV movie with um, Kyle MacLachlan and everybody, and Martin Sheen from the 1990s that we love. And it also looks like you've worked on a bunch of different cool cartoons as well. I did. Yeah, because when I was at Marvel working on the Transformers, uh, I was production coordinator of all the animated Transformers shows. Oh, awesome. And that was back before Stan Lee got Spider-Man off the ground as a movie. But Stan Lee was over there at uh, Marvel and very discouraged in those days whether Spider-Man would ever be made. <laughs> and I was working on the Transformers. They were also making G.I. Joe. And so I had a chance to write for shows like uh, Defenders of the Earth. And uh, I remember the names of all of them. Uh, I'm looking at some of these different ones here. 
they have a credit for me on the garbage pail kit, but I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't know. I don't. I, I think the story editor liked me, and he took a few ideas I had mentioned to him over lunch, and then he gave me a writing credit on it, which I nice. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, some of those uh, some of those shows, like I was a huge Transformers fan when I was a kid, and so I would watch that you know faithfully every day when it was on. So thank you for your fine work on that. Um, thank you. But how did you now? Like going back even further than that. Yeah. So where were where were you raised? I grew up in Kensington, Maryland, and then my family moved to Bethesda, Maryland, which is the metropolitan area in D.C. My mother taught fifth grade in the Montgomery County school system, and my father was a distinguished professor of American diplomatic history at Georgetown University. And my father traveled in very high circles. For example, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy was one of his students. Oh, nice. And she got him involved uh, working on the book Profiles in Courage for then-Senator John F. Kennedy. So my dad has mentioned in the preface that he he contributed materially to uh, chapters of that Pulitzer Prize-winning book. Wow. And then, um, you know, my dad was an editor of many, many volumes, all the China papers, uh, all the diplomatic papers, the United States and China, going back to when they first started talking to each right. other. So that came out to like 40 volumes. So, you know, my dad was a scholar. And then in 1968, um, a young uh, student from Arkansas joined my father's class. And uh, that was Bill Clinton. Oh, man. So Bill Clinton was one of my dad's students. So I, I had Clinton's uh, term paper from a senior year. <laughs> nice. And, and I had a lot of correspondence with Bill Clinton back when I got involved in the Roswell incident. Well, and we we and definitely have to we definitely have to talk a little bit about that because you know even Hillary is now uh, talking about uh, UFOs all the time uh, when you see her. On well, TV. John Podesta, yeah, John Podesta urged her to uh, you know make a statement that she would disclose, and um, the Paradigm Research Group has worked on. The, exposing the Rockefeller initiative that she and Bill Clinton were part of back then. But this is a, it's not the main story we're going to no, talk about no. tonight because the reason you contacted me, uh, Michael, is I have a book that just came out that I want everybody to know about. Uh, it came out in April. It's called an atheist in heaven, the ultimate evidence for life after death with a question mark. <clears throat> very, very powerful evidence that we do go on that life goes on after we leave the body and uh it's an enormous project that i got involved in here i mean first it was a movie it was a documentary film that, that got onto sci-fi right that, that was called <clears> the <throat> life after all grew out of a personal experience yeah that was the life after death project and you can find that i mean the best the best thing is that the dvd came out as two movies because there's a sequel too so there was two dvds in there and that that was back in 2013 the life after death project and i had scientists and universities involved in studying that evidence that research and i heard from many people who said you really need to have a book this needs to be a book because sure. uh, you've had all of this scientific uh, studies of your uh, evidence in this extraordinary case of after-death communication that I call the Fari Ackerman case. And <clears throat> they said, you know, we need to be able to read the scientific reports, 
the professors that worked on this, there was a lot of chemistry research of some of the physical evidence. Um, there was uh, research with uh, mediums in a laboratory at University of Arizona, Tucson. <clears throat> and that's how my co-author became involved in the book project. His name is Gary Schwartz. Very famous in this field. He's written many, many and, books. And it's also exceptional to get anybody usually involved in any kind of academia. That's that's great that they're willing to work with you in something like this. Because a lot of times they're not willing to work with anybody. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, it's rare. I mean, the people are afraid. They're afraid of their reputations. They're afraid of uh, <clears throat> being sort of shuffled off into uh, a ghetto of uh, a, the label of you know investigating things that aren't acceptable to the mainstream it frowns on. And so there's a, there's ridicule to deal with. Uh, <clears throat> and it's a problem. It, it, it's a really serious problem. And I'm, I'm kind of an agitator now. Uh, if I were a lawyer, I would be a lawyer <laughs> on behalf of all those who feel <clears throat> that they've been, uh, abused by ridicule in spite of the fact that they've undertaken very serious research and have credible evidence of what we call the paranormal for one of a better name but we call it the paranormal but there are these strange things that really do happen i'm totally convinced of that now because i've lived it <clears throat> wouldn't have wouldn't have agreed with that for maybe 40 years of my life but things have changed and um so I felt I had a mission to bring to the world what I've learned and what I know. Well, let's let's start let's start right there when you talk about finding that mission and and let's bring it back a little bit so people can kind of kind of yeah. understand the context of where you're coming at with an atheist in heaven and the life after death project. So we were, we were talking before you got to work, work on a bunch of you know awesome cartoons back in the eighties, and then yeah. you got to do something you know you got to work on the Roswell film with our our friend Don Schmidt. Um, who we've had on the show and I've, I've known for a number of years and nice guy. And so uh, even sometimes he, sometimes he says some questionable things like the Roswell slides, but I'll let that slip for today. And, um, yeah. But as far as, you know, you were very influenced by this magazine, which was edited by uh, Forrest J. Ackerman. And it's, it's the, it's the Hollywood movie monster magazine, the famous monsters of Filmland. Yes, it has a great history going back to 1958. <clears throat> the room I'm sitting in, as I look to my right at the bookshelf, I have every issue of that magazine. <laughs> I, I've collected them. I treasure them. And this started for me when I was a kid. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it wasn't just that the magazine revealed the secrets behind the monster movies back before you could find those secrets in any other way. I mean, how did they do all those incredible special effects today? It's, you know, it's digital and it's, it's amazing what they put on the screen. Absolutely incredible. You know, from Lord of the Rings, uh, to the new, uh, Warcraft, mm -hmm. it's just what you're seeing visually, uh, Jurassic park, what you're seeing visually is, is incredibly realistic now. And it wasn't when I was growing up, you know, there was some, of it that was really very bad. <clears throat> there was some of it that we considered really good. It was the best that we had. I mean, whether it was the films of Ray Harryhausen. Well, absolutely. Like, I mean, Ray, it's a, to think about um, where you guys in the audience might have seen Ray Harryhausen, obviously, I the first thing I think of is the uh, skeleton fighting scene in Jason and the Argonauts. Yes, was I think it was, was it seven skeletons? I think it was seven. And before that, he did... 
the seventh voyage of Sinbad, where there was one skeleton sword fight with Kerwin Matthews. I mean, th- this was the movie magic that I grew Absolutely. up with. <clears throat> and when I was a kid, I made amateur movies. And my little eight millimeter silent films came to the attention of Forrest J. Ackerman, this great, uh, prestigious, famous Hollywood editor. The man behind Famous Monsters of Film. The, like, so the, yes, the, the, Harry, the, the Harry Knowles before there wasn't Ain't It Cool News, even in anybody's idea, when to think of it as a modern thing. But I mean, he, he was the guy um, who kind of took that charge of like science fiction and fantasy and, and kind of bringing the Hollywood, um, bringing that world of Hollywood to like the, you know, and there's so many magazines and websites now, but you think about back when you were growing up, this was it. Yeah, we had nothing like that. And, and your Harry Knowles uh, comparison is a very good one, actually. <clears throat> but it's hard for the younger generation to understand the pre-internet world, I think. You know, we, 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 those of us who had these uh, weird interests, let's say, because monster movies was considered a weird interest in those days. I mean, the teachers certainly didn't favor right. it. And you, they'd snatch Famous Monsters magazine and destroy it if they caught you with it. But um, the um, problem was that we had no way to find out who, who we were, those of us around the country who had these interests. The only way was Famous Monsters magazine, which had a part in the back called Graveyard Examiner, which where you know the kids could write in and say, hey, I just made an 8mm movie with a mummy. And... Someone else writes it and said, well, you should see the brontosaurus I just built. It looks very realistic. So as kids, we got to know each other. And, you know, the people that I was communicating with then, some of them became very, very big. I mean, Dennis Murin, you know, he ran Industrial Light and Magic. He did okay for himself. Yeah, I mean, I think he has 10 Academy Awards. You know, and Rick Baker, Rick Baker, Monster Maker, as Fari Ackerman called um, him he has about 10 Academy american awards. werewolf in london i mean just that that for him alone he deserves every award he's ever going to get yes yes he did uh, a lot for john landis i became friends with john landis through the years and john landis uh loved forrest j ackerman uh, you know we all loved forrest j ackerman we called him far uncle Fari, okay. <clears throat> and and he had an 18 room mansion in hollywood near Griffith Park, that was absolutely filled with what we considered great treasures. I mean, Ray Bradbury called it the Fort Knox of science fiction. You know, that's where the gold was, uh, because those rooms were just filled with, you know, props and original posters from all the movies we loved the best, and the lobby cards, and, you know, the original monster masks and makeup kits, and um, the books that the movies were based on, and still photos. Fari had it all. And he was very generous. He opened his doors every Saturday and opened house. He let anyone come in. You only had to dial Moon Fan. That was his phone number, Moon Fan. And you, it didn't matter who you were, rich or poor, you know, live in a castle or somebody homeless. You could go to Fari's and he'd show you these great treasures. So this man was exceptional. He was also an atheist. Uh, he was a futurist. He believed that the future and science would bring great things, great discoveries, but he did not believe in God, heaven, angels, the undead, zombies, ghosts, UFOs. No, none of it and for I him. Think, it was all fiction. I think that's, fiction. that's great, that idea, because, I mean, here's Forrest J. Ackerman, the man who is demystifying fantasy 
or kids of all ages all over the world with famous monsters. He's yes. taking fantasy and he's demystifying. Yeah, demystifying. Demystifying by, by revealing the secrets of how the movies are made. Yeah. And so that's the demystification. If he wasn't an atheist, I'd be disappointed. <laughs> well, he was also, he was many things. I mean, he was a great humorist. Uh, I relished his sense of humor because I saw it up close. You know, for me, he had kind of a, a Mark Twain wry wit, but he loved puns, which Mark Twain might not have loved. <laughs> but he loved wordplay, games with words, words within words. You know, I mean, <clears throat> uh, puzzles with words. So that became important when I became convinced that Fari was still around after he died. I mean, now you became, you I became mean, friends with what decade or what year did you become, start becoming friends with Forrest Ackerman? All right. I first met him. I think I'm in my sixties. I think I first met him in 1963. Okay. He, he had a cross country trip to meet fans and he ended up at the world science fiction convention at a hotel in Washington, DC. And I was lucky enough to meet him then. And he invited me to bring my films the next day to show him these primitive little three-minute animated things I had made. But it was kind of exciting, you know, that as a kid to have produced something like well, that. Well, of course, that's that's the you know that's the dream. And then showing it to you know showing it to the guy that edits Famous Monsters. Ackerman and and also James Warren, his publisher, was there, and I was getting letters from them saying, "Hey, kid, you know, send us stills from your movie. You know, we want to print them in Famous Monsters." And then I entered a contest they had for an amateur movie, and I was a winner in it. And so it was more publicity. He sent me a letter addressed to master movie maker Paul Davids. Oh, what a delight that must have been. I want to tell you, you know, I, I was no master movie maker. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I think some people do consider me maybe a master movie maker now. But in those days, no, no. I, w I was a kid with a lot of dreams. And Fari nurtured those dreams. And, you know, so I ended up in Hollywood. I mean, I went to Princeton University, have a degree in psychology, studied all the sciences. So, you know, I don't have any woo-woo background. Right. I get chemistry, organic chemistry, biology, physics, uh, you know, advanced mathematics, trigonometry, calculus. I had a background in all of that and a lot of training in the sort of materialistic um, the branch of uh, psychology Skinner founded called behaviorism. Oh, absolutely, they didn't believe in any soul. Like, they didn't even study study personality or consciousness. They were only interested in behavior and stimulus response and experiments with rats. And yeah, Skinner's Skinner was very that the that you know human beings re reactions. I mean, can be predictable and behavior can be predictable if it's you know if it's the right stimulus over time and and that we're you know we're programmed to do things. Yeah. Well, when I was in college, you know, it was the era of the Beatles, and when I saw Yellow Submarine in London on the night of the premiere. I was spending a summer in in Paris, actually. I was working in Au Printemps department store there as summer work abroad as a Princeton student. And, and I went to London for a weekend and was lucky enough to be at the premiere of Yellow Submarine, the animated Beatles Man, movie. That must have been far out. Well, you know, I was so in love with animation since I was young that that movie decided it for me. It decided my fate and my future. You know, I'd always had the urge to drop all this psychology stuff and leave the academic world of the East Coast and uh, and try my hand at movies. 
as I look back on it, Mike, I have to say, I think it was pretty much of a crazy idea. <laughs> I mean, I guess I got lucky or I worked really, really hard. It usually is a combination of both. You know, the state of the business today, you know, I'm not advising any kids to get into entertainment now, although there are some that are doing really well in it. All the people that are making these $200 million, you know, uh, superhero movies we're seeing. And my son is in the business, so I should talk. But I think it's hard to get into this, really hard. And where I got lucky was I was accepted at the American Film Institute. They had their Center for Advanced Film Studies. And I was one of the first group of students taken from all across the country. They only chose 15 students. I have a fellowship to have a production budget for a student film. And I was one of the chosen 15. And it was incredible. I mean, to tell you what my life was like those couple of years in the early 1970s, I mean, we, we had the Doheny Mansion in Beverly Hills as the American Film Institute in those days. And when I use the word mansion, I mean, you got to mention, you got to imagine like a castle in Europe. I mean, this thing had you know, sweeping grounds, you know, and stone walls and, you know, lots and lots of, you know, stone in the structure of it and sweeping corridors. And it's been used as a movie set in a lot of movies, including one of the Muppet movies, The Loved One. Lots of movies have filmed there. But at that time, it was our school and it was the center for the American Film Institute. And I was in heaven. I mean, we, we got to meet the directors and producers we liked the most. We call them up and tell them we wanted to spend a week at the school showing their movies and have them come and give a seminar. And that's what would happen. In the early 70s, to, like that's the age of the auteur, you know, that, that idea that of uh, where, um, I mean, the t- you know, Francis Ford Coppola and, you know, George Lucas and yes. everybody comes out of that school. Exactly. And Steven Spielberg. That time... That was the days when Easy Rider came out, you know, this little $400,000 movie, uh, you know, that had Peter Fonda and uh, Jack Nicholson was in it. And um, who was number three? Come on. Oh, it's been a while since I've seen Easy Rider, but. Oh, 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 I'm so ashamed. I'm not his, his name will come up. <laughs> uh, he made the last movie. He was re- Dennis Hopper. Oh, yeah. Hopper. Oh, yes. Okay. Crazy guy. Um, but that little $400,000 movie, which even had Phil Spector in a little part, <laughs> that's another story. But it, it made a lot of money. And the, and the studio's big budget movies those days, a lot of them were failing. You know, big pictures like The Sand Pebbles, and uh, people didn't want those movies the way they used to. They wanted these edgy little uh, movies. You know, like Easy Rider and Medium Cool. So in those days, young directors were given a shot, you know, because Hollywood thought maybe some of these kids are going to make things that are going to make us money. It was all about money. It was all about, if you didn't have the success of a few independent films, it probably wouldn't happen. So I was one of that group. And I met George Powell, my hero. Uh, He did The Time Machine and War of the Worlds. Many great He's films. even mentioned in uh, the opening of Rocky Horror Picture Show, the, the first song in Rocky Horror, they, um, Word Worlds Collide, said George Powell to his bride, I'm going to give you some terrible thrills. 
Oh, that that's great. Well, I knew his bride. <laughs> that was Joe Capel. And, you know, I had dinner with Joe Capel at the Acker Mansion where Fari lived uh, one night in 1986. And Ray Harryhausen was there. And, I, you know, to be in with that whole group, listen, I had the job of reading all the screenplays for submitted for Charles Bronson. Oh, nice. Uh, he, you know, he, he, he was the number one tough guy before Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, uh, you know, I got to work with director William Wyler and, and, uh, with his memorabilia, uh, and then, um, John Houston, another great director. So I had a storybook existence. It was wonderful. And throughout those decades where I worked my way into the business, you know, got to do the transformer show, uh, was, um, production coordinator on a lie detector television series. Uh, George Lucas had me write six star Wars books with my wife. We wrote six of the sequels oh, nice. uh, at a young level. But if you remember books like the glove of Darth Vader, the lost city of the Jedi, the prophets of the dark side. I mean, I wrote those books. Oh, awesome. Okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. Like the, like the, the, the kids books that were take off the stories and would like add to the yes. story. Yes, Mission from Mount Yoda, Zorba the Hutt's Revenge, Queen of the Empire. That was my world. And then getting to be executive producer on Roswell for Showtime. So here I was on this wonderful path and all the time very close to Fari, the atheist. And Fari was getting older every year and I was getting older every year. Well, Fari, who was born in 1916, he died in 1990. Uh, no, he died in two. 2008. Okay, so he made it. That's, okay. a, that's a good run. It was a good run. He was 92. And, uh, I mean, he felt ready to go. But he didn't believe he was going anywhere. You know, disillusion of the darkness and the, the eternal nothingness. Right, right? oblivion. And he, 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 I got him to admit that if it turned out he was wrong about an afterlife, that uh, if he had a chance and he could do it, that he would drop me a line. Okay. And maybe that was my mistake, or maybe it was the smartest thing I ever did. But Michael, that's where my life did become a twilight zone, a living twilight zone for the last uh, six years. Now. Oh no, it's eight years now. Yeah. And I, I, I hope your listeners will read my new book, an atheist in heaven, because this is what it's about. It's about, what happened as a result of that promise that Fari would drop me a line if he could when he died? Because he did, Mike. Now, now, but you and, aren't. But you, when let's go, like, so you, uh, you were saying before that you weren't, uh, you know, a big believer in the paranormal or anything like that. So you no. didn't have, you don't have like UFO sightings in your past, or you, you, oh yes, yes, I oh. do, I do, I do. Yes, let's get that on the table <laughs> because the reason I produced the Roswell movie is that in 1987, my nine-year-old daughter, at about four in the afternoon, I even remember the day, February 25th, 1987, she screamed at me to come running upstairs because she saw a flying saucer. And I was busy, and she, downstairs she had interrupted me several times, and I said, you know, I'm sure you know what a weather, you know, not a weather balloon, I said, what a blimp looks right. like. It's a, problem, a Goodyear blimp. Take another look. And she insisted it was a flying saucer. And, well, it was. Okay, so I was a daylight witness to that with my two children. Was this in Los Angeles? Yeah. 
yeah, we went out on the roof of our house. It made maneuvers near our house. And uh, from that day on, I knew that they were real. I'd never had that as a belief in my belief system. You know, it was always science fiction to me. I hadn't educated myself. I hadn't read the good books, but I saw this. So uh, that led to my tremendous interest in research that led to my meeting Donald Schmidt, who you interviewed. Mm -hmm. And then after fighting to get Roswell, the movie made for several years, first with HBO, then Showtime said yes. And they gave us a very ample budget to do it as a TV movie. It came out really well. And it came out right, it came out exactly the right time too, because um, first of all, it, it seemed that you know Roswell was entering America's imagination in in the mid '90s. I mean, the X Files starts in 1993 and kind of puts that fire of some of the alien government conspiracy and everything. And yeah. that movie was, I'd say, the word on Roswell for most of the people of my generation who'd heard of it the first time through the film. Yeah, it. it, it thank you. It, it came out in 1994 on TV for the first time, and it had a long life on television, you know, and, and DVD. And we did our utmost to tell the Roswell story uh, the way the witnesses, the people that had lived there, that broke with the cover-up and came forward to tell the truth. And the truth is that something... Um, that none of them could explain that otherworldly um, crashed there and the military acquired the debris. And, you know, we know from people like uh, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Corso and his book, The Day After mm-hmm. Roswell, that that debris was funneled out into industry without industry being told where it came from through the foreign technology division and it it became the basis for a lot of things that resulted in technological advances and no one would admit this it was all very very top secret but what colonel corso said was true I, i refer everybody to his book it's not true in every fact uh you know he had a co-author and uh not everything was exactly right but the thrust of it is right. It reveals what, uh, you know, I think will be revealed now. I mean, if, uh, you know, John Podesta. If he gets his way, damn it, uh, I hope he does. <laughs> yeah, if he gets his way, you know, the X-Files are going to see the light of day and, and, and the public will eventually know, you know, that we're not alone. So, yeah, I had a background in that. Now, as far as this other paranormal stuff about life after death. Well, that's, it's two different okay. branches, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's one thing to, For me, it it's is. one thing to think that, well, of course, there's you know that there's life out there in the universe, so they could be traveling. Or I mean, that's that, that seems actually more reasonable to, to believe than reasonable not to believe. But, yes. but to believe in in ghosts is something totally different. Yeah, most scientists believe that there's got to be life out there. It's just that they feel it's the distances are so vast, it's impossible for them to get here from there. We don't know how that would happen. Um. And then there's also the question of whether it's something coming from another dimension. You know, there can be other dimensions that are right here with us right now. Uh, we don't have these answers, but what we are seeing is evidence that there's a lot of strange stuff going on that doesn't fit with everyday reality, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that 
there's something about the twilight zone that is, you know, becoming evident. Um, so, so Forrest Ackerman, with the life after death thing. Oh, I, I just I wanted to say that my one exposure to this field, when I was working on the TV show Lie Detector for F. Lee Bailey, you know, the lawyer, he was one of O.J. Simpson's attorneys, and you have a famous lawyer. So, for Lie Detector, every uh, week we would bring somebody on the show who had a story to tell uh, and they wanted it backed up. They wanted to take a lie detector test and have F. Lee Bailey say, yes, you're telling the truth. But sometimes we'd get liars on the show and the result of the test would show that they had fabricated the whole thing. So we got some really interesting cases. You know, we we had Betty Hill on that show. Oh, and Betty Hill, uh, if you guys, she was one of the first cases of alien abduction and and missing time. And we, we talk about her in, um, I'll put that episode in the show notes. So when you guys are looking at it, you can you can find it there. Yes, Betty and Barney Hill. So Betty was there. Barney had died. How did she do in the And she came out true. You're truthful? Hmm, yeah. All right. And and the, the other one who was on was my case was a psychic named Dorothy Allison from New Jersey. Okay. And she was a psychic detective. It's the first time I'd heard of anything like that. But there had been books written about her. And uh, I got to see the police file of all the cases she had worked on where she had helped uh, the police like find a missing body uh, in a murder case. And she passed the lie detector test about a very fascinating case where she had cracked the case and police hadn't. And at that point, I. I thought to myself, yeah, there, there's something to this, and I wanted to know more about mm-hmm. it. Now, that was in 1983, but the world of strangeness having to do with you know mediums and the other side uh, didn't enter my life until after Fari died. So, and it was 2009 when that happened. So, all the time from 1983 to 2009, except for the flying saucer <laughs> sighting. You know, life was pretty normal for me, but the last eight years, I have to say, it has, things have been completely uh, different, and well, I, I have I, I have all my faculties, but these things keep happening. They're all listed in an atheist in heaven. There's a glossary. There's over a hundred really weird things that have happened to me. Some of them can't be explained by science. I've had scientists working on it. Their scientific reports in the book An Atheist in Heaven, and some of them are more of the nature of extreme coincidence happening again and again and again. We'd say, okay, well, there is a one in a million chance that could happen, but uh, I had a one in a million yesterday, and then I have a one in a million today, and then another one in a million tomorrow. You start to say, wait a minute, something's going on There's a on pattern here. here. Yeah, and then there were experiences with mediums that Professor Gary Schwartz brought in that were fantastic. And we had instrumental transcommunication. There were instances that the computers were involved, that the video cameras were involved, that the telephones were involved. Um, we had physical phenomena, what they call apports, things disappearing, and then they show up again in a place where you looked. And you just know nobody put it there because nobody could have put it there. So, and then we've had the things that have disappeared and never showed up again that related to something having to do with Fari, usually. So 
life has been different. And my point of view, my point of view about life has become different because I feel like Fari, he kept his word to drop me a line. And he's taken it upon himself as spirit to let me know that life goes on, you know, which a lot of people believe that anyway. And religions have been telling us it for thousands of years, but most people maybe don't believe it. They want to believe it, but they don't. So let's go back right to the the very beginning. So he dies in 2008. And about how long after he passes um, did the first strange thing happen? It happened in March, um, the week after the tribute to him, March 8th. Uh, Nothing happened from the time that he died until the tribute. And the tribute was a really big event at the Egyptian theater in Hollywood. And I mean, every seat was filled and there were major speakers there. I mean, Ray Bradbury spoke and uh, Guillermo del Toro and uh, John Landis and uh, Rick Baker and Peter Jackson checked in from New Zealand. I mean, it was an all-star cast for this tribute. And little old me, I was a speaker there too. I knew Fari really well, and I was one of these sci-fi boys. Right. You know, I, I made a, I made a movie called The Sci-Fi Boys that Universal released, been seen on TV hundreds of times all around the world, which is in its own way my tribute to these pioneers of science fiction especially Forrest J. Ackerman and how this one man and his vision so influenced kids who had creativity and learned how to make movies that he was responsible for inspiring, you know, the Lucases and the Spielbergs and um, Dennis Murin and Rick Baker. And I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, it includes Stephen King. Right. I mean, he, so, he helped create, I think, uh, millions of fantasies and nightmares. That we that we all get to appreciate now because because yeah. of that nurturing like when you, when you talk about that you know you guys would trade and they they put pictures of your 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 movies and everything like that in the magazine um, yeah like the the thrills that must have been that helped inspire a kid to go from you know I'm just out here in the boonies or whatever making my stupid super eight movies to well maybe I can go to Hollywood and do this I mean that's exceptional I that's think. Right. Yeah, that's the dream that came true for me. Well, you asked how long did it happen after he died, and so it's it's a couple of months, you know, from early December to uh, March, and it started the day of the tribute. Um, it started first for a couple of other people, some Canadian filmmakers who'd made a biography about him, and. Uh, I don't know whether to go into the detail of all the specifics of all these things that happened. I mean, they, you need to read An Atheist in Heaven. You need to watch my movies, my double feature called The Life After Death Project, because it's all there in spellbinding detail, all of the incidents. I do want to, before, before I get into the first thing you know that happened sure. to me that knocked my socks off, uh, I do want to mention that that letter Fari sent me that said to master movie maker Paul Davids. I kept it forever, of course. And it had special stamps on it. It had stamps of Santa Fe, New Mexico, Palace of the Governors, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it had a stamp of Edgar Allan Poe, who Fari loved, of course. Right. And, And at that time that I got that, I had never been west of Virginia. 
right? You know, right. I mean, I would watch Disney's Wonderful World of Color every Sunday night and dream, oh, will I ever get to California? Will I ever see Disneyland? You know, but I had never been west of Virginia when I got that letter. Now, when the weird stuff started to happen, within a 48-hour period of that, I was in what was then my vacation home that my wife and I owned in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And one of the strange things that happened was an EVP, which we think was from Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. Oh, man. Do you, do you understand the strangeness of that? I mean, we're talking a gap of decades from the letter with the stamps to those events coming together in space and we've actually got a recording of a voice which i mean it could be poe but the thing is what it's saying is let me try and say it like it sounds it's on a videotape it happened when no one was physically present who could have said it and it was lenore ah clotha raven how great is that Yes, yes, she's the lost love in the oh, Raven, man. and he and he also wrote uh, a poem called Lenore. So that's that strange juxtaposition of things. And then the first event that happened to me that was so incredibly inexplicable involved something happening with ink on a document in the Santa Fe home when I was alone in the house. Okay, and I'm I'm going to jump ahead to my conclusion about sure. it, which was that. Basically, I'll say it in the vernacular, the ghost of Fari Ackerman changed a document that I had by blacking out four words. That's what I concluded, but I only concluded it kicking and screaming and not wanting to believe that and looking for every logical scientific answer I could possibly find for what happened. And there was evidence involving ink. You know about it from the article I wrote in Fate Absolutely. Magazine. And I took this evidence to um, the head chemist of Indianapolis, uh, of Indiana University, Purdue University, mm -hmm. Indianapolis. Um, and, you know, usually a scientist would say, well, I'm not going to deal with that. You know, I'm not going to, I don't want to be tarred and feathered because I researched something having to do with a ghost, you know. But it happened that the head of the chemistry department, who was world class forensic chemist who had testified in many trials where chemistry was the evidence dr jay siegel he he happened to be my cousin my first cousin oh, well, there you go he, he's he, my mother's brother he was the son of my mother's brother and we we had uh, actually watched some science fiction movies and theaters together when we were kids and then we'd been out of touch for decades only occasionally and when i called him up i said jay you know you've got to help me with this i said i just something happened that it i there's no possible explanation for it basically i'm alone in the house in santa fe and the doors are locked and i've got a 24 page document my printer did it's a boring document you know it's it's business meetings and a list of phone calls from the business phone calls from the previous year for going over for taxes uh couldn't find a duller document and i had uh i looked it over enough before i went into the bedroom that i knew it was totally ordinary and you knew that there you know, wasn't there was, any ink on it beforehand there was no nothing strange about the ink that we absolutely knew for a fact it was just as you would expect it to be no story right 
dull. I went into my the bedroom in the house there. The doors are locked. I'm alone. It's a little spooky. You know, it's very dark there at night. We don't have street lights. You know, you see the stars. It's uh, Santa Fe. It's in New Mexico. It used to be Indian lands long ago. So I put this document down on the bed. Uh, and I went into the bathroom for a few minutes. I, I was knew I was going to crawl into bed and... Um, look through the document to try to find things that could relate to tax deductions, sure. you know, because you forget what your business meals were and trips you took. And that's what it was for. And when I came out of the bathroom and looked at the document, it had definitely been changed. And the, there was ink that was still moist that had blacked out four words on the document. You could still kind of read two of the words but the other two words completely opaque the thing is it was done neatly it was precise you knew right away it was targeted you know you can't get out of this by saying oh something smudged oh you must have had a leaky ceiling water dripped on it it's smeared oh you must have had a leaky pen in the bed and that's what the skeptics try to do because they distort the whole thing uh, they call it a smudge. Right. It's not a smudge. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's it's a cheap inkjet printer first, or something like that you used. Or... Yeah, they, they want to say, oh, it must have been your printer. No. No, it's precise. It's still moist. And the document had been printed out an hour and a half before. <laughs> but this is moist. And it's just those four words. Well, it took me many, many days before it dawned on me what the message was in those words and why it would be a message from Fari. I don't want to tell the whole story here, but just to say it, once I figured it out mm -hmm. and with his love of puns and word games, he had chosen four words with a word within a word, a name within a name. Uh, that basically this was like a thank you for my part in the tribute. And when I, talked to the guy who had arranged the tribute, he had corroborating evidence too from something that happened to him. So this, Mike, is just how it all started in 2009. That was item number one. Well, when you told people about it, so, you know, when you, when you said that, um, I mean, how did you approach uh, the other people involved without, you know, were you worried that they're like, wow, they, they, they might think that well, I'm a was crazy hard. guy? It was hard to discuss because my wife even called me while the ink was still wet, and I didn't bring it up in the conversation that night. I, I was, for, I was still absolutely in shock, and I was somewhat afraid because I knew there had been another presence in that room that did that deliberately. And I'm alone in this house, and it's unseen. It's invisible. It found you on vacation. Yes, Fari found me. And let me just backtrack one more step to tell you something really amusing, because I said he had a sense mm -hmm. of humor, and there was a sense of humor in his message. But when I was looking through some of my old famous monsters later, I found one. I think issue number 90 said, read about the man who saw King Kong 90 times. That was Ray Harryhausen. And... So it was a big article on Ray Harryhausen, and I had gotten Fari to autograph the first page for me. And what he wrote was, hooray for Harryhausen and Paul Davids. That's what he wrote. 
And he wrote the word hooray, H-O-O, and then a hyphen, and then Ray. Sure. Because that's Ray Harryhausen. And at the ink obliteration that happened to me had the same kind of thing in it, you know, with a name right there in the middle that gives you the clue of what he means. But with this issue number 90, when he signed, I gave a lecture one time and showed that up on a screen, and I hadn't noticed a key piece of evidence with it. And someone in the audience said, why didn't you talk about the Invisible Ink Man Strikes Again? And I said, what? What, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And the lady said, well, underneath where he signed, it says Fang Mail. This is for the table of contents of the magazine. Fang Mail is the mail section. And it says, printed there in the magazine, the invisible ink men strike again. And I thought, oh, my God. Think about that as a synchronicity. <laughs> because it, what happened to me, it wasn't invisible ink. Quite the contrary. It was ink that became very dark and very opaque. But if you think of that expression, the invisible ink man, it's the ink man who did the ink who's invisible. Right, and he did it to you. And he struck again. He struck again. I mean, maybe to me it was the first time he struck, <laughs> right? But it's exactly what he did. And it happened to be that his signature was right above that of all the different magazines. That's a synchronicity, Mike. It's one example. I want to tell you that there are at least 30 or 35 examples that strong. And they're mind-bending. You know, they're just mind-bending. Well, what, what was kind of the, the point that you said, like, I have to make a movie about this? Uh, you know, like, I've got like, I've, I've to do something about it. You know, it turns from, well, this is interesting, and then this might be some synchronicities, and maybe I'm thinking about this because I loved my friend, and we wanted to, you know, we just did that nice tribute. When did it become, like, I, I, need, it, to, I, need, to make, I need to document this so that people know yeah, that he's the, back? With the, the, no, the first, I didn't know he was back. And the movie idea came slowly. But the idea of documenting everything was right there from the beginning. Because remember, I worked for F. Lee Bailey, right? I was into evidence. <laughs> I was into truth and false. And I knew what I, my, my story was true. This is nothing about this is made up. I've signed a, a sworn affidavit that's at the beginning of this book. And I say, as God is my witness, this story I'm telling you, it's like the testimony I would give in front of a jury, uh, having sworn on a Bible, like we always do. Right. It's all true. So I looked at this thing as evidence right from the beginning. I had to protect it. I had to be careful. I had to not touch it. And when I talked to Jay Siegel, he said, oh, you know, well, I'll, I'll have a look at it. He said, why don't you FedEx the thing to me, and I'll take a look at it in the lab. And I said, no, no, Jay, Jay, I'm not going to FedEx this. I'm not going to take a chance. This thing, if it got lost by FedEx, right. the evidence is gone. I said, I'm going to have to get on a plane. And I said, and by the way, can I bring my video camera? Because whatever you're doing in the lab, I want to film Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So he said, yeah, so that's how it started. I filmed in his lab. Then I, he, he couldn't solve it. And a, a couple weird things happened in his laboratory while we were caught on film. And he wanted to bring in another chemist he had worked with at Michigan State University for many, many years. He and Dr. John Allison had been a team of chemists. And together, they had become world-class experts in exactly what I needed. And that was inks, paints, 
dyes, and solvents. They knew it more than anybody else. So he sent me then to New Jersey. So then weeks later, I'm on a plane to New Jersey, and Dr. John Allison is doing laser desorption tests. And John Allison, he had never met before me before. He was really a skeptic. Of course. <laughs> I was to say, the, the confrontation between me and John Allison, I don't know, call it a confrontation. The, the interplay between us itself could make a uh, funny movie. Right. <laughs> because um, his attitude was, look, I'm a chemist. I know there's an explanation for this. Uh, you've given me a challenge. I'm going to find it. He said, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. You know, I want the facts from you. He said, you know, I think you should be able to solve this problem pretty quickly in the lab. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm telling you right from the start, the science I work with does not bring in intervention by dead people's ghosts as the answer to how things happen in this world. Right. So that's the level of his skepticism at the well, the story of the change in John Allison, it's, it's one of the reasons to see the movie The Life After Death Project, one of the reasons to read the book, because he's written a couple chapters in the book. His transformation from arch-skeptic to complete believer is an incredible story, because not only couldn't he solve the inkblot mystery with three years of studying it, with bringing in, you know, Classes of students every year, every semester to try to solve the problem, taking new approaches, studying 300 types of solvents to try to duplicate it. Nothing duplicates the effect of that ink obliteration. And while he's doing the studying, weirder and weirder stuff starts to happen to him. Totally ghostly. Some of it caught on film by my camera. And it's continued for years for him, too. And it's touched many other people who either get involved, who knew Fari, in some cases just people who see the movie I made or read the book, The Atheist in Heaven. I've had reports from people that are staggering. The bottom line is that the transformation of John Allison and all the things that happened to him <clears throat> and things we caught on film, it is... Um, it's, it's, it's a staggering story to see a committed scientific skeptic uh, transformed to the point where he'll say that he, he, he believes in all this now. He believes that there is an other side, as the title of your show says. Right, well, oh, hey, you know, so, something, something else is happening that's really strange to me right now. These things have been happening. My printer has just printed two pages by itself. I could hear it. I thought you were working on something. I, was, I wasn't sure. I didn't. I did not touch it, and both pages are blank. This is strange, but right toward the end of the last interview I had, uh, something really weird happened with the interviewer's voice, and it started echoing like dozens of times. So, well, I, think it, I think maybe it's the spirits trying to say that, um, hey, they want to be part of the show, too. They always are. <laughs> so that's fantastic. I mean, Paul, this is, this is a really... Um, all this stuff is really fascinating, and I, I, I'd like everybody who has who has an interest in this to either check out the book or check out the DVD. Where's the best place that they can get it? Well, I tell people, you know, I, I, Amazon.com is easy. 
they have the DVD. They have that at Amazon Prime, but it's only part one they have there. You get the DVD, you get both movies, and the second one's really good too. But An Atheist in Heaven, they have it at Amazon either as an ebook or as a beautiful hardback, and it's 500 pages long, which might seem daunting, but there's a lot of photographs in it. You know, that's just filled with photos of all the things that I'm telling you about and all the people. It's all documented and it's all true. Well, uh, I so, want everybody uh, to check it out. I, I want, I, we might be running out of time. Are we here, Mike? Running out of well, time? We had enough time for another story I, or so. Okay. Because I wanted to say that if you read the reviews at Amazon, you know, there's a lot of good reviews of an atheist in heaven. And there's one guy who wrote, um, not writing under his real name that the caption was just more magicians tricks all deception and he just attacked the book and he said you know he said i i've tended to believe in this stuff but i don't believe this book i think i don't believe the guy's um affidavit is worth anything you know he he's I am a magician of sleight of hand. I'm a member of the Magic Castle, but it has nothing to do with what's happened to me related to all the things in this book. You know, this has been the universe's being playing the magic tricks on me. But he said, now, don't believe him. Worthless deposition. And we, and we only have one guy's word for it when it just comes down to it. And, you know, Mike, that is so wrong. It is so, I hate it when people just lie and misrepresent because you've got lots of people's word for it in this book there were lots of witnesses to the things that happened you have reports from the scientists that worked on the physical data there were three universities involved so i'm just tired of that kind of crap i really am i just uh but i want to warn your listeners sure that there are people out there that um have that hell-bent close-minded you know, I'll I'll never believe it till the day I die, and then I won't believe it. Attitude, and uh, I don't know. You know, what's the best way to react? There's some people you'll never convince. Okay, I don't care. The important thing is, I want everybody to know I've told the truth. This whole thing is a document of reality, devotedly done with an index and a glossary, and it's all true. And if anybody has a problem with that, well. Fine. Don't bother me. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, uh, I can't wait to um, check out the second part of the Life After Death Project, and I'll definitely be checking out the rest of the book, too. And we'll have links to all that kind of stuff in the show notes that you can find at othersidepodcast.com slash 96. I wanted to thank you for your time today, Paul, and your fascinating story. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking oh, to yeah, you. Oh, yeah. You've been really enthusiastic host. and i really enjoy, I enjoy hearing all those stories and stuff and um it's just it's it's really interesting to me especially that it's forrest ackerman <laughs> you know himself coming back i love him i want far to know he's always welcome he's a, you know it's a friendship that did not end with death it goes on awesome thank you very much paul and next time you uh next time you release something or something like that we'll call you again and we'll, we'll we can talk about the next thing thank you very all much right, have a great night a pleasure thank you bye well, Paul Davids sure was a really nice guy to talk to. 
Yeah, he sounded like a really nice guy. And wow, what a story he's got. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. I'd say it's an incredible story. And you, you can find that lifeafterdeathproject.com has links to the book, An Atheist in Heaven. It's got links to the documentary. So you can check out more like right now and check cool. it out. I, I totally want to check that out because there were a lot of details and things that um, I'm curious to to find out more about. <laughs> well, what I liked how he did it is, is that um, he found some kind of proof and then he took it to a scientist immediately. Yeah. And that, that's exactly what you should do if you want to prove to people that uh, you have some kind of evidence that something paranormal is happening to you. Right, right. So, and he, he, he believes it 100%. So, Paul Davids, thank you for that story. It was pretty cool. Yes, thanks. And if you guys out there are enjoying the podcast and want to show your support, we got a new place where you can go. Where is that, Wendy? It is at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Ah, we have a Patreon now. Yeah. And, and so that's the place where if you guys are enjoying it, because we, we do songs and podcasts and videos and all that kind of stuff free all the time. We're going to continue doing that. But if you feel so inclined to help out, othersidepodcast.com slash donate is where you can do that. There we go. Anyway, speaking of songs... For this week's song, wanted to take a little bit of inspiration from the movies that Forrest Ackerman used to cover in Famous Monsters of Filmland. So we're calling this Sunspot song Behind the Curtain. For a whole generation, he was the inspiration, stoked the imagination of the monster nation, didn't buy predestination or a soul relocation. Don't believe in heaven or any reincarnation. At his end of aspiration, his human cancellation. They think that he's playing tricks after death communication. So they put this complication under examination. Now they give the afterlife reconsideration. Please pay attention to the man behind the curtain. Because he's somewhere in between Please pay attention to The man behind the curtain You'll hear from the dark side of the screen So this famous monster is now an atheist in heaven And he's still having fun And he's still making puns Said he would come back someday That he would communicate But no one could anticipate his paranormal wordplay And if you think they're cracking They lost their comprehension That there ain't no action No final destination These guys have a conviction That his spirit is still living It's their Uncle Maury Scientists believe the story Please pay attention to The man behind the curtain Because he's somewhere in Attention to the man behind the curtain You'll hear from the dark side of the screen Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Lenore.